finish our series today, finally. I broke up the last sermon into two, of the topic into two. Uh, one, because I thought it was such a rich text for us to meditate on that it would take at least two weeks to do that. But secondly, because this is a very important topic for us as a church. Um, if you've been paying attention, we've, we've sort of gone through a, a season of, of rebuilding, I think, this summer maybe. You can call it that, using a sports metaphor. But we've seen, uh, we've seen spiritual warfare in our midst, and we've seen people fall away, and marriages damaged and broken up, and we've seen sin triumphant in certain, certain lives. It's always a difficult thing to see, uh, but it's also a good thing in terms of pushing us to go to the Lord. Satan is not successful against weak Christians. This is what I mean by that. If we are weak, if we realize that we are weak and we depend on the Lord, Satan cannot be successful against us. He is successful against those who think themselves to be strong, who think themselves to be wise. That's the people who fall. That's the people who fall away. So for us to, to, to spend two weeks on this topic and really consider spiritual warfare and how we are to protect ourselves and, and cling to the Lord again is a very helpful thing, especially as we're going into the fall. Our ministries are starting up again. We're going to mobilize and uh, we're going to take ownership of what God has given us and use the resources He's given us and uh, do well with the mission that, that He placed before us. So I want you to take seriously uh, where our church is now and, and uh, step up, take on responsibilities if you're not uh, if you are not responsible for anything right now, as Dave mentioned, we need people to serve on Sunday mornings. So if you want to do a simple task and commit to that, they'll be very helpful to the body here and to the people who are coming into the church that we're trying to serve and, and spread the gospel to. So I'd like you to take that seriously. Think of this as, a, as an army type of situation, okay? using our analogy here. So let me pray, and then we're going to read Ephesians 6 and talk about spiritual warfare again and, and, and further. Father, we, we come to you knowing how weak and how stupid we are. We, we don't have military knowledge and tactics and strategy. We don't have the required weapons. Our bodies are not trained to win this war. And so we have to come to you, and we do. And we come to you and fall before you and we pray that you would equip us. We pray that you would train us, that you would structure us and put us in the right regiment with the right tactics in place, with the right leadership and the right resources. We pray, Lord, that you would triumph in our lives. We want your victories. We want to do what you want us to do and do it well, but we don't want to do it on our own power. And so, we surrender ourselves to you and we admit our inadequacies and the lack of resources. And we pray, Lord, that you would accomplish what you have planned long ago for this church and for us to do. We pray for conversions. We pray for the sanctuary to be full of your people, people you have called to yourself. We pray for our special needs ministry to be successful and so we could serve many families affected with disabilities and special needs. 
We pray that You would bless our children and bless our marriages. We pray that this neighborhood will see revival from the Lord. Lord, we ask all of that knowing that we have very little control over any of it. And so we trust You and pray that You will do this great work for Your glory, not for us to take credit, but for us to defer and give credit and glory to You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the end of the letter to Ephesians, uh, Paul reminds us that we are all involved in this great cosmic conflict against the powers of evil led by Satan himself. I, I talked a lot about it last week, so if you want to check out that sermon, it's online, and get more background for this, you're welcome to. Um, but I'm just going to assume you, you agree with me on all of that right now. Uh, and we need to learn to withstand our enemies' attacks. Last week, we, we talked about the normal way in which our enemy attacks us. And it's not through these Hollywood-like, horror film-like attacks. You know, we think of the devil and you think of the demonic and you think, oh, that's the exorcist. You know, that's green pea soup coming out of your mouth. You know, that's, that's not how the devil usually attacks. He does sometimes, but his normal way of operation, what he is very successful at, is through lies and accusations and slander and deception and temptation, all those subtle things. Paul says that we wrestle against him. Wrestle meaning what? Meaning we're not fighting these battles where we're shooting out missiles. No, we're wrestling. This is close. Uh, the arena of, of the war is in our hearts and in our minds. It's through confusion and deception and temptation that the devil fights us. So we need to be aware of his schemes, of his strategies. We need to be aware that this battle is subtle and that his greatest weapons are, in fact, confusion and lies and, and so on. So we need to be very careful to defend ourselves in the right way and mainly through the use of the truth. We need to take on the truth of God, His Gospel, and defend ourselves from guilt and shame and distractions and discouragement in our Christian walks and ministry. So how do we protect ourselves more practically? That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to go through the armor of God and go through each item in the armor of God and see how the Gospel applies to each one of those. Now, you remember from last week that this imagery of the armor of God comes from the book of Isaiah. And it comes through those passages in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 59, where God Himself and His Messiah, Jesus, are presented as the warrior on our behalf. And so as God Himself fights for us, He uses this armor. And now this armor is given to us to wear as we fight the battles against our enemies. So we're not going with our own resources. This armor isn't in your closet. You can just go and get it and put it on. No, this is God's own armor. And so every piece of that armor reflects something about God and specifically about His Gospel. So that's why we call this armor of God Gospel gear. Gospel gear is what we need to, to put on. So let's start from the very basic things. What is the Gospel? What is the gospel? Do we understand what the gospel is? We throw this word around all the time at our church. The gospel is this news, the good news, that Jesus came, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death, that he rose from the dead, and that through that work, 
we can be saved, reconciled to God, that we can find peace with God, we can find a right status before God because we're no longer guilty before God because Jesus paid for our sins, that this message comes to us by grace. It's not because you have prepared yourself and you've earned favor with God and now you're ready to accept the gospel. No. The gospel comes before you've done anything. And so you accept it by grace as something unearned. And you respond simply by faith. You're saying, I believe that God did that. And I trust that what He did is enough to reconcile me to my God and give me a life of freedom and joy and meaning that stretches into eternity. That's the Gospel. Okay? This is a, a simple summary of the Gospel. Now, if you look at the armor of God, and let me read the passage. As I read the passage, look at the words that are used when we talk about this armor of God. So let's start at verse, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now listen to the words that are used here. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness, readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may, begin, may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, if you've been paying attention, the words that are used to describe particular pieces of the armor are truth, right? And that's a word that's used all over the book of Ephesians to describe the gospel, the content of the good news. Then we have righteousness. What is that? Righteousness is the perfection of Christ that's been credited to you through the gospel. Once you believe in Christ, you're considered perfect because Christ is perfect and He did the work in your stead. Then we have gospel of peace. What's peace? Reconciliation with God by grace. Faith. That's a necessary response to the gospel. Then we have salvation. God's rescuing us through Jesus. And finally, the Spirit and the Word, meaning the preaching of the gospel, enabled, made effective by the Spirit so we can accept it and be saved. So do you see how in Paul's description of the armor, we see a summary of the gospel? Something I just did right before we read the passage. This is very similar. He's using the same terms. He's talking about the same thing as we talk about when we say the gospel. And so when you think about the armor of God, please don't see it as some magical thing. Don't think of it as 
If I only say to the devil, I have the breastplate of righteousness on, you can't touch me, that that's going to work. No. It's not about the pieces of the armor. It's about the pieces of the gospel. It's about the elements of God's character and His work. And those are the elements. Those are parts of the gospel we need to apply to particular temptations and accusations of the devil. Martin Lloyd-Jones rightly summarized, he said, the armor consists of an understanding and application of the truth of the gospel. The armor of God consists of an application and understanding of the gospel itself. And so as we think about the armor of God, as you think about protecting yourself against your enemy, the most important thing is to understand the gospel and to apply it in particular ways as the attacks come. And that is my goal today. I'll go through all these different parts. There are six and see how the gospel is reflected in each one and how it could be used <clears throat> to, to protect ourselves from particular accusations and temptations. Okay, what is this belt of truth? Well, what is a belt in the Roman soldier's equipment? That is the first thing a Roman soldier would put on. It goes underneath everything else. The belt for the Roman soldier was not just the belt on which you would put your sword on and maybe some supplies. It also included sort of an undergarment and an apron. That the thick leather apron would protect your thighs and lower abdomen. It would also give, give you a, a kind of an undergarment to put the armor over. So that's a very foundational thing. That's the first thing you would put on and you would fasten it. You would buckle it up. Why? Because of that part... Is it on right? All the other parts aren't going to be right on either. You see, if you put on the belt and you don't buckle it correctly, right? the sword is going to get in your way, the breastplate is not going to be attached properly, and so you're going to be fighting and trying to buckle your belt at the same time. That's no good for a soldier. You have to be ready. You pull your pants up, you buckle your belt, that's how you get ready for battle. In fact, when Roman soldiers would take a break, when they were off duty, they would loosen their belts and they would just relax. When they would be ready for battle, they would fasten them and buckle them up and be ready so all the parts of the equipment would function properly. So, what does that have to do with the gospel? What does it tell us about the gospel? Well, like the soldier's belt, the gospel is foundational. It is essential. It holds everything else in place. In other words, the tighter your grasp on the gospel is, the clearer your understanding of the gospel is, the more prepared you are for battle. If your belt of truth is loose, your range of movement would be limited. Your armor would not be properly put on. And the enemy has already gain an advantage over you. If you don't have a clear view of the truth of the gospel, it makes it much more difficult for you to discern the lies of the enemy. Do you see the logic here? If you don't know the truth very well, how can you tell if something is a lie? Now, the old illustration that is often used for a point like this in sermons is, is real money against counterfeit money, Right? If you haven't spent any time looking at real money and haven't noticed all those little details and the shades of color and how different pieces are put together, if somebody gives you a counterfeit banknote, 
you won't be able to tell a difference. This is the point. Paul is saying, you have to put on the gospel as the belt, as the undergarment, so you can be ready to discern what's true and what's not true. So let's apply it a little bit. Is your belt of truth fastened? Is it buckled? Do you understand what the gospel is? When I summarize the gospel to you, did you understand all the different aspects that I've mentioned in a fairly short summary? Do you understand things like substitution? When Christ dies for us, he dies in our place. Do you understand that there is an exchange that happened on the cross? That Jesus took your sins, put them upon himself, and then he give, gives you his righteousness so you can be considered perfect. Now, you don't have to know the terms necessarily, but do you understand what imputed righteousness, legal righteousness, means? Now, I'll, I'll cover that a little bit further in the sermon. But do you understand the meaning of Christ's resurrection? What does it do to you that Christ conquered death? How does it change you? Do you understand the nature of Christ, that he is both God and man in the same person? He has two natures in one person? That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about these doctrines of the gospel. I'm talking about these doctrines that comprise this good news. Do we understand it? Is that something that you can understand yourself and explain to someone else? What does it mean to be saved by grace? Do you understand the concept of grace? Now friends, I'm not questioning your conversion. I'm not saying you have to understand all of this in great detail to be saved, to be converted. No. That's kind of the point of grace, that it just comes to you undeserved. But, as you are growing in Christ, are you growing in your understanding of how you are saved? How God saved you? A Christian who only has a vague idea of what the gospel is, though he or she may be genuinely saved, they are an easy prey for the devil, who is masterful in confusing us as through the truth of God. Now, how do you get this understanding? Well, first of all, don't wait until Satan attacks you to buckle up your belt. You have to do it now. You have to do it before the battle. So, now that you're thinking about it, read. Read good books on the gospel. We have, in our library, we have a book that's called What is the Gospel? Great place to start. Talk to other mature believers. If you're a new Christian, talk to other believers and ask them questions like this. and tell, Ask them to explain the gospel to you. Listen to sermons that specifically focus on the gospel and its various doctrines. Uh, in, in, in the spring and beginning of summer, we did a sermon series from Ephesians 1, kind of the first block of the book of Ephesians, on the gospel. And we talked about things like grace and, and redemption and election, those things that comprise the gospel. Go online and re-listen to that if it's, if it's hazy to you still. Be in a Bible study where you are discovering how the gospel works. Commit to those things, and the more you understand the gospel, the tighter the belt of truth is on you, the better you'll be able to, to withstand the attacks of the devil. All right, I'm going to go pretty quickly through these because we don't have a lot of time. But the next one is breastplate of righteousness. What is a breastplate for a Roman soldier? It's a metal piece, maybe bronze. It's a piece of armor that covers the chest and the abdomen. 
So when you see all those Hollywood movies, right, you see the Spartans and they have these shiny, you know, that, look, that looks like it's reflecting your muscles. Well, not my muscles particularly, but there's usually a six-pack and very muscular kind of reflection. And, and so they, they put them on. Why? To protect the vital organs, to protect the heart, to protect the liver. All of that is covered by a giant piece of metal so that if an arrow strikes, it can't do you any harm. If, if you get pierced with a sword, it won't get through that, that heavy armor. And it's here on purpose because that's where all your vital organs are. You get pierced through the heart, you're gone. There's nothing else to do. And in fact, sometimes this breastplate was called a heart protector. People would call it a heart protector because the main job was to protect your most important organ. Now, you know that biblically, the heart is the seat of your affections. It's the seat of your personality. The heart isn't just a place where emotions come from, like today we would use the heart. But in the biblical terms, the heart is where all your personality comes from. That's where all your ambition comes from. That's where all your desires come from. That's what, what makes you who you are. And so Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Cover up the very core of who you are. Cover up your identity with righteousness and with Christ's righteousness. You see, very often, Satan would attack us at the very core. And he would pierce you or try to pierce you through the heart. He will find that main insecurity you have, that greatest fear, the greatest failure of your past, and he will go straight there. And you know how he does it very often? Through the criticism of somebody who's close to you. Somebody in your family, somebody in your church, somebody who will say something, and sometimes they don't even realize what they're saying that will go right to the heart of who you are. And unless you protect it, this might as well kill you. That's how painful it feels. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Somebody makes a remark, right? And at that moment, all you want to do is you just want to run away and cry because you feel that they finally discovered this dark secret you've been pretending you don't have all your life and you've been covering it up, and you've been making it look like you're better than you are, but all the time you know who you are, and you know the great insecurity that's in your heart, and you know the great fear, and you know the great failure. And then somebody says something that seems like it's just right about that. And all of a sudden you feel like what you've been hiding all your life has been exposed. And everybody knows that really you are just a pathetic failure. And that's really who you are. In your heart, you are a loser. That all the stuff you've been trying to pretend isn't there, it really is. And now somebody knows it's there. And they're just safe. And you feel crushed. I mean, it's, it is tremendously painful. And I'm sure all of us can go back to a particular time, particular remark that still haunts you today, that seems to expose that deep wound in your heart. Now, how do you handle an attack like that? Are you wearing the breastplate of righteousness? If you are, you're still going to feel the blow. It's still going to feel like somebody is attacking you, because somebody is. But the arrow will not pierce your heart. The righteousness here is the righteousness of Christ. It's not your righteousness. Very easy to make this armor of God about things that we do and things that we are. This is not about your righteousness and in your integrity. 
This is about the righteousness of Christ. Remember, it's his armor. And so this righteousness is this perfect righteousness. It's imputed, meaning that it's been given to you through Christ. Sometimes it's called legal righteousness. Meaning what? That legally before God, our status has been changed. We were legally guilty before God because of all our sins. And now that Christ died and rose from the dead, we are proclaimed to be legally righteous. We're legally innocent. We're legally not guilty. God has given his verdict. And because Christ died for us and took our punishment, we are not guilty before God anymore. That's legal righteousness. That's imputed righteousness. It's been given to us, credited to us. It's not our own. It's Christ. But he took our sins and he gave us his righteousness. If that's true, put that on as a breastplate to protect your heart. When the devil comes to you and accuses you and points out your flaws and failures and calls you unlovable and worthless and pathetic and a loser, you should respond like this. And maybe you say it when you feel it. Maybe verbalize it. Yes, I am all that but I am also perfect in Christ. I got this breastplate of righteousness that protects my heart from attacks like this because legally I've been proclaimed innocent, perfect before God. That's who I really am. And you say, I will boast in the Lord. I will not boast in my own righteousness and my own failures. I'm not going to pay attention to that very much. I'm going to boast in the Lord because He is my wisdom. And He is my righteousness. And He is my sanctification and my redemption. He loves me and He accepts me. No one can bring a charge against me. Not even you, Satan. Because I am justified on the basis of Christ's perfect life and sacrificial death. Who is to condemn me? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God interceding for me. God himself died and rose for me and he is interceding for me right now as I am being attacked by the enemy. Breastplate of Christ's righteousness. All this perfection, all this legal innocence is mine through faith in Christ. Listen to Martin Luther. Martin Luther had a lot of interactions with the enemy some of which are recorded for us, and this is one of them. Luther says, When I awoke last night, the devil came and wanted to debate with me. He rebuked and reproached me, arguing that I was a sinner. To this I replied, Tell me something new, devil. By the way, Martin Luther loved to mock the devil. I already know that perfectly well, he said. I have committed many a solid and real sin. Indeed, there must be good, honest sins, not fabricated or invented ones, for God to forgive for his beloved son's sake, who took all my sins upon him, so that now the sins I have committed are no longer mine, but belong to Christ. This wonderful gift of God I am not prepared to deny, but want to acknowledge and confess. Luther is right on. Luther has the breastplate of righteousness. Because the devil comes and says, you are a great sinner, you're worthless. And Luther says, I know this, tell me something new. I know that about me, but 
all my sins and all my failures have been given to Christ and His righteousness have been given to me. And this gift of righteousness, He's saying, I'm not going to question. I'm not going to deny it. I'm going to confess it to you and I'm going to acknowledge it. Another example of putting on the breastplate of righteousness is, comes from Thomas Chalmers. He was a Scottish preacher in the 1800s and during a particularly uh, hard season of ministry where he got a lot of criticism from his peers, from other pastors, he wrote this in his journal. He wrote, I need to rely on the legal righteousness of Christ. Why is he saying that? Because his own righteousness has been damaged. His reputation has been damaged. People are slandering him. And he's saying, I need to focus on the righteousness that I have in Christ because that is more important. This is who I really am. I'm perfect in Christ. No matter the slander and the accusations I get even from my peers. Next one, the shoes of peace. The shoes of the readiness provided to us by the gospel of peace. Now, what are the Roman military shoes look like? There were half boots, kind of half boots have sandals type of deal, and they were studded with hobnails. They were like cleats. So think of a football player, right, that has cleats. They provided better traction so a soldier could dig in to stand firm and to fight no matter what the surface is on which he stands. This is very important because other military forces of the day were not equipped with such shoes, which meant they couldn't travel as fast because you get an icy patch and everybody's sliding around. Romans could travel fast and they would surprise their enemy by ambushing them because they could travel over great distances over various terrains. And once they fought, they were able to dig in. So whether it was muddy or icy or rocky, their shoes provided enough of traction for them and stability so they could fight off attacks, whatever the surface was. Now, how does that relate to us? Well, it relates to us in the sense that temptations come in various circumstances. You know that Satan tempts us differently in different situations. When you're doing well, for example, you're healthy, you have enough money, Marriage is good, children are thriving. So, in other words, the surface you're walking on is smooth and it's, it's great. You're not stumbling at all. You're not sliding around, not slipping. The temptation, then, is to forget God. It's to take Him for granted. It's to say, I'm doing great. I don't need God. Or even worse, to think that you've deserved all of that and say, well, of course I'm doing well because I am a good person and God must love me for this. So all these blessings come to me because of what I've done. And so then you reject God and His work in your life and His grace by giving all the credit to yourself. Now that's one way to be tempted in the time of plenty and abundance. On the other hand, when you're not doing well, when you're going through chemo, when your spouse has loved you, when you lost your job or your house, it's rocky ground, it's slippery, it's icy. The temptation is to curse God. Right? Like Job. People told him, just, just curse him. Just curse him. Because he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. God has failed you. But we need to be aware that temptations are different in different circumstances. When in times of plenty, you're not tempted to curse God. You're tempted to forget him. 
or take him for granted. In the times of need, you're tempted to curse him and to point out that God is not faithful to you, that God has abandoned you. Those are very different things that need to be battled with different weapons in different ways. So how does the gospel help you keep your footing no matter what the circumstances are? Notice that it is the gospel of peace, meaning reconciliation with God by grace. The gospel tells us that God loves you in abundance and in need. And that he loves you the same whether you are blessed by human standards or you are struggling by human standards. And because he loves you by grace, suffering is never his punishment to you. Friends, get this. If you are a child of God and you are suffering, it is not because God hates you or because God is angry with you. It's not true. It's a lie. On the other side, any kind of blessing, everything in your life that you think is great, still comes from a loving God that loves you by grace just the same. You see, wherever Roman soldiers were ordered to go, no matter how difficult or long the march, they knew that the goal was victory. But that they were put by their general, they were put in the best situation to succeed and win the war. That all the tactics worked towards their victory over the enemy. Whether it meant a smooth surface or a rocky surface, they were going towards the battle that they were going to win. There was great confidence in the Roman power in the day. They could they take on anybody. Now that's the same for us as Christians. As you look at your life, whether you are struggling or you right now you're relaxed because things are going great, those are the same means of God's blessings in your life. Because God loves you by grace. It's not that you've done so well that now God has to bless you. No. God gives you exactly what you need to gain victory. And sometimes he does it through suffering. And sometimes he does it through abundant blessings. Let's not question God's motives. And let's not take for granted that he loves us. That it is by by grace and not because we have earned it or we have displeased him and now he has to punish us. This is the application of this piece of the armor. When Satan tells you that this difficult situation is God's curse on you or an expression of his anger with you, friends, you have to dig in. Dig in your studded shoes of the gospel of peace and you say, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not angry with me. He cannot be angry with me because all of that anger was spilled on Jesus. He took it all. There's nothing left. God is not angry with me. And when Satan tells you that the blessings in your life are rewards for your great performance, what do you say to that? You say what Job said. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is all by grace. I have no claim on God's particular blessing. He gives what he thinks is right. And he gives it all by grace because he loves me. And so I will be grateful to him. Next one, shield of faith. What is this shield? This shield is a very large piece of equipment. It's the size of a door. 
So imagine a door to your house. That's the shield. So about four feet by two and a half feet. Very large piece of equipment. It was designed to cover the whole person and protect against all arrows coming your way. Now before battle, the soldier would soak this shield that was covered with leather and material. They would soak it in water so that the enemy's fiery darts or, or fiery flaming darts or fiery arrows would be extinguished. This is part of ancient warfare. Uh, before you, you do hand-to-hand -hand combat, you would shoot arrows at each other, right? And so to, to maximize the destruction by an arrow, what, what they would do, they would dip it in pitch or tar, or sometimes they would even, even tie up a little, a little sack with pitch to the arrowhead and light it on fire. So when they shoot the arrow, wherever it hits, it's going to start a fire. And lots of things were made out of wood, so it was very, very destructive. So the Roman soldiers would dip the shields in water, soak them in water, and then they would go forward. And as they would go forward, you've seen the movies, right? As they would move forward, they would hide behind the shields. And then when a particular a fierce attack uh, when many arrows come at you, they would all kind of huddle together. Remember that? They would huddle together and, and cover up with shields. They would form this wall of shields. They were soaked in water. They're wet. They can extinguish all the flaming arrows. And they would keep advancing until they can pull out their swords and fight face to face with their opponent. So the picture here, get, get the picture. You know, don't get too much distracted on, on what the actual things really were. But get the picture of what, what he is communicating. He's saying we need to be covered all of us need to be covered by the gospel. Which means that when the arrows come, not one part of your body is exposed. And so Satan has no opportunity to strike at you. Because everything has been covered by this gospel that is soaked in the blood of Jesus and able to prevent all the fiery darts from damaging you. Now, this is the problem with us friends, we think that the gospel only applies to particular parts of our lives. And so then we leave these large portions of ourselves and our lives completely exposed to the enemy. And so we think the gospel has to do with my soul, the spiritual part of me, but the gospel has nothing to do with my body. We think the gospel has to do with what I sing, the songs I sing on Sundays, but it doesn't have anything to do with how I manage my money. We think the gospel has everything to do with my devotions in the morning, but it has nothing to do with my marriage. Well, this is very faulty thinking. And Satan rejoices at that because now you've exposed your marriage to him. You've exposed your money to him. You've exposed your sexuality to him. And the image here is to cover all of that with this large shield of the gospel, shield of faith. Now, let me give you an example of that. Does it ever surprise you when a very successful pastor falls into most obvious and gross sexual sin? We hear those stories often, right? This, you, you, and some of the people that we maybe we've listened to their sermons and admired how God has used them in the church. And then you get the story on the news. This person was caught with a prostitute using drugs. What? How does that happen? The person who preaches the gospel every week, right, counsels people as how to live their lives, literally. That's what we do, Pastor. We tell you how to live your lives. So you do that every week. You do it all the time. And you look at, at the Word of God as your job. 
and then all of a sudden you fall into a temptation like that? How does that happen? I will tell you exactly how it happens. Such pastors, and nobody's immune to that, not me, nobody's immune to that kind of temptation. We tend to think that the gospel would cover our ministry, but we can handle this other stuff on our own. And so we think, I'm not stupid. I'm never going to fall into this sin. What am I? I'm not going to see the temptation when it comes. I can handle that. I can discern danger when it comes. And what happens? We don't discern the danger. We really are stupid. We don't notice stuff. And then we fall right into it because we're trying to do it in our own power and in our own wisdom. That's how the devil picks off even the ministers of the gospel. Now, apply it to your life. Which part of your life, which part of your personality, which part of of who you are and what you do is exposed to the enemy? Is there a part in your life that is not covered by the gospel? That you are still using your judgment and your wisdom and your power to manage? Which part of your life you still think foolishly is under your control? And Jesus doesn't need to, to meddle in that. Which part is that? Is it your money? Is it your marriage? Is it your sexuality? Is it your ambition? Is it your career? Is it your relationships? Is it parenting? What is it? That, that you feel that the gospel doesn't quite apply there, or you don't know how it applies. You've just never thought about Jesus coming into that part of your life. Be careful with that. The gospel must change everything. There's no part of your body that should not be covered by this great shield of the gospel. Helmet of salvation. This is a heavy bronze helmet. And I think I've mentioned last time, it's, if, if you've seen certain movies, it's like Magneto's helmet. It's got the, the cheek guards. It's like a Roman, Roman helmet. Um, and so all you see when you put on that helmet, all you see is just the eyes and the nose. Everything else is covered. It's just all you need to be able to breathe and see. Everything else is covered. And the point was, the reason why everything was covered is because when somebody hits you with a big sword on the head, right, it better be all covered. It better be able to withstand that big blow. And so it was made of this, of mostly of bronze, of the strongest metal. It was padded underneath, because it was so heavy, it was padded with soft material so, it could, so your head wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't get hurt when you just put it on. And so the hope was that, that one big blow comes, you'll be able to survive it. It wouldn't crush your skull. And so that's the helmet. You wouldn't wear it all the time. You would put it on during battle or right before battle, and you would hope that it would protect you specifically from a hit with a sword. Now, how does that apply to the gospel? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. Paul uses the same metaphor of the helmet, but he calls it the helmet which is the hope of, the, of salvation. Here he says helmet of salvation. There he says the hope of salvation. You know that hope in Scripture means confidence, means assurance of what is to happen in the future. The hope of salvation means assurance of our final victory in Christ. So the helmet of salvation is the helmet that assures you and protects your head 
protects your brain that gives orders to the rest of your body, that keeps your body to keep going when it's hard, when it's wounded and exhausted. Your brain tells you, keep going, because the victory is near. And it motivates your body to keep fighting. When you know that your salvation is secure, you have courage. When you know that Christ will have his victory, you don't need to doubt that. And you have this confidence in his victory on the cross and then in the empty tomb and in his coming victory and his return, you can keep going. You can be protected from discouragement. You can be protected from giving in to Satan's temptations to quit and surrender and to give up. Now listen to Thomas Brooks. Thomas Brooks was, was a Puritan pastor and writer. He wrote a whole book on, on precious remedies against Satan's devices. If you need something to read, this is a worthwhile investment. Let me just say, read the Puritans. You read a page of the Puritans. Somebody's laughing in the congregation. They always talk about the Puritans. But you read a page of the Puritans, man. It is soaked in Scripture. It is so helpful. So Thomas Brooks says this. Christ, our champion, has already won the field and will shortly set our feet upon the necks of our spiritual enemies. Satan is a foiled adversary. Christ has led him captive and triumphed over him upon the cross. Christ has already overcome him and put weapons into your hands that you may overcome him also and set your feet upon his neck. Though Satan be a roaring lion, yet Christ, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, will make Satan fly and fall before you. Let Satan do his worst, yet you shall have the honor and the happiness to triumph over him. Cheer up, you precious sons of Zion, for the certainty and sweetness of victory will abundantly recompense you for all the pains you have taken in making resistance against Satan's temptations. Listen to this. The broken horns of Satan shall be trumpets of your triumph and the coronets of your joy. What a beautiful phrase. On every page in Puritan writings, by the way. What a beautiful phrase that the horns of Satan will be your trumpet of triumph and will be your crown of joy. Now that's the assurance of your victory. That's the assurance of salvation. That's the helmet of salvation that protects you from discouragement and protects you from giving up and giving in to his temptations. And so you go into the battle and you say, we will win this battle. And these horns that are poking me right now will yet be the trumpets of my triumph. As you're fighting Satan, you should be thinking what kind of crafty thing you're going to make out of his horns. Because you're sure that Christ will triumph. Now, this is the application for this. When you feel that the devil is winning, in the midst of a particularly fierce temptation, put on this helmet of salvation. Think about the decisive victory of Christ over Satan on the cross and in the empty tomb. Think about the final judgment that is sure to come to all Christ's enemies. Think about what you're going to make out of Satan's broken horns. And take courage. Well, I have one more piece of armor. And this is the part where some of you are thinking, he should have broken it, broken it up into three sermons, not two. But this is my last point, so be patient, please. Sword of the Spirit. 
This is a short-handled sword. So when you think about Roman swords, you think about Spartacus, right? Those are the swords, the short swords. They're meant for close combat. They're both defensive weapons and offensive weapons. And by the way, this is the first offensive weapon we have in this list of equipment for the Christian. Actually, I don't need to say a whole lot about this sword because we've been using it throughout the sermon, have we not? We've been using God's words. We've been using the gospel that's empowered by the Holy Spirit to defeat particular lies and temptations of the devil. And that's exactly how we overcome the devil, by preaching the gospel to ourselves and by preaching the gospel at his face. And he runs because he can't stand it. Luther says, if you want to fight the devil, you must know the scriptures well. And besides, use them at the right time. So it's called the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Meaning that it's God's Word, it's Scripture, it's the Gospel. But the Word that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Don't look at this and, and say, well, if I, just, if I can just quote verses that say, then I will win. No, you won't. You know, that's, that's happened before. People were quoting verses and they were completely subdued. But you speak the truth that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do not separate the Holy Spirit from Scripture. They go together. God's Word is meant to be empowered and made effective by the Holy Spirit. So in, in terms of application, when you read Scripture for yourself, read it prayerfully and ask the Spirit to apply it to your hearts and your minds so that when the devil attacks your minds and hearts, they are so saturated with the Gospel that they can withstand the attacks and able to preach the gospel to the devil himself. I'll finish with this. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Do you believe that? Do you believe that all your enemies can be destroyed by the mere power of this message of grace in Jesus? Because that's what scripture gives you to fight your battles. Paul here does not tell us, get more education, get in with a better counselor, join a program that's going to equip you. He's not talking about that. He's saying, understand the gospel and apply it. Understand the gospel and apply it against the devil. And you will be successful, because that's where the power lies. The gospel is the power to salvation. And so it is the power to victory over our enemies.